welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. What's up, everyone? Thanks for tuning in to our first scripture walkthrough. The format of these episodes is really to choose a chapter or a set of chapters in scripture and go section by section within that chapter and try and clue you in on the main ideas and the overall logic of the section. And this format might change as we go. This is really a work in progress, and this is the first time I've done anything like this. So your feedback and any impressions or ideas or insights that you have to share, go ahead and, uh, and send them my way. Now, these might change as we go along, depending on your feedback or, or what I feel is working and not working. But the way I kind of envision these scripture walkthroughs is this is something that you might listen to before reading a chapter or even as you have the chapter open. My goal is really to give you a kind of overall feel of what the author wants you to see. So without further ado, let's jump into Jacob 1. Jacob, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Jacob starts off by letting us know his when and where. It's been about 50 years since Lehi and his family have left Jerusalem. This probably puts Jacob in his early 50s. We know that they're in the land of Nephi, that they've gone on a second exodus after already uh, leaving Jerusalem. Since they've been in the promised land, they've had to go on another exodus into the wilderness. And as will be the case going forward, when Nephi passes the sacred records to Jacob, he gives him a charge and he gives him his responsibilities concerning them. Jacob and his posterity will be in charge of the small plates going forward. And what Nephi says is that these small plates are reserved for the most precious, the most sacred parts of the history of the people. He is not to concern himself with the history or politics or wars of the people. But Nephi says if there were preaching, which was sacred, or revelation, which was great, or prophesying, that I should engrave the heads of them upon these plates and touch upon them as much as it were possible for Christ's sake and for the sake of our own people. He goes on to make the point that because of faith and great anxiety, it truly had been made manifest unto us concerning our people what things should happen unto them. This is starting to sound familiar. Jacob is going to follow Nephi's example. Remember, Nephi had an expansive vision early on in his life. He had seen uh, what would happen to his people going forward. Apparently, Jacob has received that same knowledge of these events. And it's worth remembering what those events were. Remember that Nephi saw the birth, baptism, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus the appearance of Jesus to the Lehites, the scattering of the Jews in Jerusalem, the destruction of the Nephites, the scattering of the Lamanites by the Gentiles, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon among the Gentiles, the gathering of the Lamanites and the rest of the house of Israel by the Gentiles with the Book of Mormon, and finally, the second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of Zion. If we're paying close attention to Jacob's language, 
he says that he and Nephi have both faith and great anxiety. Now, those two things may seem contradictory to us. In the 1820 dictionary, anxiety is defined as concern or solicitude respecting some events, future or uncertain, which disturbs the mind and keeps it in a state of painful uneasiness. It usually springs from fear or serious apprehension of evil and involves a suspense respecting an event and often a perplexity of mind to know how to shape our conduct. Yes, they have faith, but they know that there will be incredible suffering experienced by their descendants. Even prophets apparently struggle with anxiety. So what's his answer to balance faith and great anxiety? He goes on to say that they had many revelations in the spirit of prophecy, wherefore we knew of Christ and his kingdom which should come. That's his first answer. Coming to a knowledge of Christ through the spirit, developing the faith side of that faith-anxiety dichotomy. And this faith is not just believing. It's believing that Christ, through his atonement, can transform our relationships with each other so dramatically that it produces his kingdom. How does that work? In what ways can and does the atonement of transform our relationships? What are some of the ordinances and or covenants that are meant to produce different types of relationships? Later he says, we had a hope of his glory many hundreds of years before his coming. We talk about faith, hope, and charity, but I wonder if we ever stop to consider how these relate to each other. Jacob seems to be demonstrating that relationship right here. He has cultivated his faith in Christ to the point that he has had a hope of his glory. That could mean a number of different things, but I think that at the very least, it means that he is going to live in the present as if the future kingdom is already a reality. This is how he and Nephi talk about their relationship with the law of Moses, for example. Jacob says, for this intent, we keep the law of Moses, it pointing our souls to him. And for this cause, it is sanctified unto us for righteousness. So his faith is strong enough to produce hope. And his hope in the future is strong enough to change how he behaves in the present. Wherefore, he says, we labor diligently among our people that we might persuade them to come unto Christ, partake of the goodness of God, and that they might enter into his rest. I think that's his second answer to the faith-anxiety conflict. His faith produces hope, which produces charitable action directed toward others. Can we use those two methods of dealing with anxiety about the future? What does cultivating a stronger faith in Christ look like in your life? What promises has Christ made about the future that can increase your hope? How would you treat others more charitably if you were to behave as if those promises were already fulfilled in this moment? Finally, Jacob ends this first introduction with these profound words. Wherefore, we would to God that we could persuade all men not to rebel against God, to provoke him to anger, but that all men would believe in Christ and view his death, 
and suffer his cross and bear the shame of the world. In LDS culture, we tend to focus on the resurrection of Christ for good reasons, I think. But Jacob wants us to view his death. What might it mean to view Christ's death? How would you do that? How could the ordinances of the gospel help you to view Christ's death? That's not all, though. Jacob wants us to suffer his cross and bear the shame of the world. As we will see, Jacob does not shy away from the fact that there is suffering in this world. Maybe I'm stretching his words a bit, but if suffering is inevitable, perhaps there's a way to suffer in faith versus suffering in great anxiety. This wouldn't be the first time he's tried to teach this lesson to the Nephites. Remember that he also told them that to be carnally minded, suffering in great anxiety, is death. And to be spiritually minded, suffering in faith, is life eternal. I wonder how remembering Christ's suffering could change how we feel about the trials that we're going through right now or about our anxieties about the future. Verses 9 through 14 After his introduction, Jacob shifts to give a brief, orienting bit of information regarding the structure of the Nephite society. Nephi is coming to the end of his life. He's about to die. He's been the only king that his people have known, and he has to figure out what happens next. And the result is that Nephi anoints a new king. Jacob's language here is interesting. He says he anointed a man to be a king. That doesn't sound like the next king is Nephi's son. Maybe it is, but that's unclear. Since Nephi's successors end up all being called Nephi, they are, for all intents and purposes, his inheritors. But we don't know exactly what happens to Nephi's children. We also get an insight into a Nephite artifact here, which is the Sword of Laban. The historian Don Bradley has done some fantastic works on the lost pages of the Book of Mormon. One of the things he has discovered is that there's some evidence that suggests that the sword of Laban is actually the sword that Joseph of Egypt had commissioned to be passed down through his descendants. Joshua used that same sword during the conquest of the land of Canaan, and it's possible that Laban could have inherited that sword along with the brass plates. Remember that Laban was a descendant of Joseph. These sacred relics, uh, like the sword or like the plates, pass from one generation to another as a means of conveying authority and uh, purpose and identity. It's perhaps appropriate here to ask what objects or opportunities we have inherited from our ancestors. We've heard various prophets teach that our ancestors cannot be saved without the work that we do for them, but also that we cannot be saved without them. Do you know enough about the stories of your ancestors to know what impact their decisions have had on your life, what tools are available that would help you to learn more. Jacob concludes this section by referencing the different tribes that were in the land of promise. He says that there were Nephites and Jacobites and Josephites, Zoramites, Lamanites, Lemuelites, and Ishmaelites, seven tribes in total. Those same seven tribes are mentioned later in the same order in 4th Nephi and also in Mormon which makes it seem like they were intentionally ordered and numbered that way. Do you notice who is missing? There's no tribe of Sam. The Ishmaelites are all bunched together, even though we know that there are multiple sons of Ishmael. Even though Jacob makes note of these seven tribes, he also makes the point of saying 
that from that point on, he'll only be referring to the Nephites and Lamanites. While much of the Book of Mormon consists of stories of Nephite versus Lamanite conflict, Nephi and Jacob know that most of the Nephites will be destroyed, but that the Lamanites will be redeemed in the last days through the Nephite record. It really is the case that for Lehi's posterity to come and partake of the fruit of the tree of life, as he saw in his vision, they must come together, the four tribes of Nephi and the three tribes of Laman. Family can be some of our most rewarding relationships, as well as, obviously, some of our most challenging. Can we learn anything from Nephi, Jacob, Enos, and the others who labor diligently to write so that their families slash enemies could be redeemed at a future date? Is there someone in your life, maybe, who needs your diligent labor, who you think may not deserve it? Jacob chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Right away, it seems the Nephites are beginning to struggle with their prosperity. Nephi mentioned earlier that they lived after the manner of the happiness for decades. We now have at least one generation of Nephites who were born and raised in the land of promise. With Nephi as their king and Jacob and Joseph as their priests and teachers, life was as good as it could be, and perhaps they got a little complacent. In the last section of chapter 1, Jacob gives us an introduction to his temple discourse. The Nephites are guilty of two grievous sins, he says. The first one is they are mistreating women by creating a system of polygamy. And they have concubines, and they're trying to justify it by referring back to David and Solomon. And the second one is that they are mistreating the poor. And there's something that links these two sins together. In all of their prosperity, many Nephite men have started to set themselves up above others. And Nephi, before he died, warned about this in the last chapters of his writings. Perhaps he had a sense of what was coming. He said, He commandeth that there should be no priestcrafts. For behold, priestcrafts are that men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and praise of the world. But they seek not the welfare of Zion. Behold, the Lord hath forbidden this thing. Wherefore, the Lord God hath given a commandment that all men should have charity, which charity is love. And except they should have charity, they were nothing. Wherefore, if they should have charity, they would not suffer the laborer in Zion to perish. But the laborer in Zion shall labor for Zion. For if they labor for money, they shall perish. Now, we don't usually think about priestcraft that way. Oftentimes, we think about priestcraft as a preacher or a pastor or a bishop or something like that gaining money from his work in service of the Lord. But we can expand that and think about the purpose for prosperity in the promised land. Why are the Nephites prosperous? Well, they're, presumably they've kept the covenant of the Lord and the Lord has promised them certain blessings. But the next question has to be, well, here's the land of promise. It's a land of covenant. What are those blessings supposed to be used for? And are these men using them appropriately? These men are men of privilege. Many have been born in a covenant people in a promised land during a period of prosperity. Their prosperity was not meant to be used to raise themselves up above others. And Jacob has no patience for their oppression of those who are weaker than themselves. As a priest and teacher, he says, if he does not labor diligently, then the blood of the people, their sins, 
would come upon his garments. They would become his sins. And there's some Day of Atonement imagery here. Jacob, the priest, representing Israel, passes the sins of Israel onto a sacrifice. Jacob will not be that sacrifice, he says. He can't be the one that absolves them of their sins. He's going to try to direct them to the one who can take their sins from them and heal the wounds that these Nephite men have created. Well, that's all we have for you today. Thanks for tuning in. Hopefully there was something in there that captured you or that that helped you to see this section of scripture in a different way. I'm always open for your suggestions and insights, and I really want this podcast to be a service to my students and really anybody else who uh, starts to tune in. So any feedback that you want to give, I'm, I'm absolutely open. Thanks, everybody. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Thank you.